You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. I'm going to read from Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. And then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Don't do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to portray him. Are you guys awake yet? Okay, good. Me too now. It feels like the hotter the weather is, the more likely we are to have technical problems, right? Like the hotter it gets, the more the technology doesn't want to work either, or stands. Uh, Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Houston. I'm uh, the the church planning resident here at the Vine, uh, and I'm here to talk to you about Matthew 26. Uh, But before that, I'm going to talk about something very near and dear to my heart. Uh, heist movies. Ocean's Eleven. Have you guys seen the movie Ocean's Eleven? Uh, quick show of hands. Who's seen Ocean's Eleven? Okay. Okay, good number of you. I'm going to spoil it. So, I'm sorry. Buckle up. But it's 20 years old. I feel like at this point, if you haven't seen it, that's, that's more on you than me. But, okay. Ocean's Eleven. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. And it, it circles around this guy. I'm talking about the The 2001 version. Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Matt Damon. um, The cool one. Uh, In this movie, it orbits around these 11 characters uh, who work for this guy named Danny Ocean. Hence, Ocean's Eleven. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the synopsis for the movie because I think this this is a great synopsis. Dapper Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, is a man of action. Less than 24 hours into his parole from a New Jersey penitentiary, the wry, charismatic thief is already rolling out his next plan, following three rules. Don't hurt anybody, don't steal from anyone who doesn't deserve it, and play the game like you've got nothing to lose. Danny orchestrates the most sophisticated, elaborate casino heist in history. I mean, you can feel the electricity coming off of that. Right? This, you can imagine, nine year old Houston, I am hooked on this movie. 
And in the movie, they plan a heist to steal from somebody who hurt one of their friends. And, uh, of course, he's dating Danny's ex. So this guy deserves it, for sure. And, and there's a sense of nobility to it, uh, you know, even though, really, they're thieves and they're stealing from someone. And throughout the movie, as the plot unfolds, we see uh, further and further along how the plan uh, is working. And eventually, the plan hits bumps and snags, and characters get caught, and the good guys are backed into a corner, and eventually, at the last second, they pull through. Have you ever seen a heist movie before? This is, this is a pretty common trope. The heroes of the story are all but caught, and it seems like everything has gone wrong. It seems like all is lost. And then we see at the last minute that really, our heroes were in control the whole time. And so in Ocean's Eleven, this is the spoiler alert, in Ocean's Eleven, there's this scene at the end where Danny Ocean and his gang are caught. They're, they're caught by the casino uh, security. The police have showed up, and they're getting arrested and carried away. And you think at this moment, this is it. This is the end. They've lost. And then you find out that these policemen arresting Danny Ocean are actually part of his gang. And they get away. And they get away with the money and scot-free. They're not caught. And there's a lot of highs and lows in heist movies. But one thing we see from this one in particular is this moment where the bad guy is sitting at his desk and he's all smug. He thinks that he's won. He's relishing in his victory. And then it dawns on him. He opens up the bags of the recovered money and it's just flyers in there. And he was duped. And it turns out that the whole time Danny Ocean's plan had gone perfectly. And then, in fact, the bad guy actually played his part to a T as well. And so, you know, how does this relate to the Bible? Well, what we're going to see today is that when we come to these passages over the next few weeks, when we're getting ready to read what Matthew's got planned for us at the end of his gospel, at the climax of his gospel, at the climax of the whole story of the Bible, we're going to see that, that a lot like Danny Ocean, in a sense, the Lord's been working his plans since before the beginning of time. Everything up until this point has been preparing the way for Jesus and his death. And at the end of gospel, or here at the end of the gospel of Matthew, we're, we're taking a turn. We've been putting the pieces in place. Matthew's been putting the pieces in place for us. And now what we're going to see is that this domino tower is about to fall. What we're going to see is that the Lord has put these pieces in place. And we're going to see how the people around Jesus respond when the dominoes start falling. And we're going to see that the cast and crew for this story, uh, much like a heist story, are all a part of the action. We're going to see that at the center of the story is Jesus and what he's going to do and what we know now that he has done. And then we're going to see how each of the characters respond to how things are going down. So let's pray real quick. Father, I just pray that as we come to your word, that you would bless this time. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you've got for us. And I pray that, uh, like we sang earlier, that these words that I say and and the things that we hear and learn today uh, would not be through me, but through Christ Uh, in all of us, Lord. We just pray that you'll work in this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so I'm going to reread verses 1 through 6. You've got this in your uh, service guide. So if you don't have your Bible on you, you can flip to that. Verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered in the place, the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Sorry, just one through five. So, uh, first, there's a few things happening here that I want us to pay attention to as we're jumping into this story. First, we see this line. So when Jesus finished saying all these things, and it goes on. And this is a significant turn of phrase that Matthew uses in his gospel. What he does is he uses this phrase to mark out big sections of the book, big chunks. And each time in the gospel that we saw this phrase, we were turning a corner in some way. Something was shifting. And so here, Matthew is marking this beginning of this passage. He's preparing us for something new. And if you flip just one page later, two pages later, you're going to see what that something new is. We are preparing for Jesus' crucifixion and eventual resurrection. And, and really, even Jesus' words here tell us that. He says, you know that in two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And so on one level, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is going to happen. He's telling them that he will be betrayed and crucified. And we see that the, the chief priests and the elders of the people begin plotting together on how they're going to do this, how they're going to kill Jesus. And, and this is not surprising to us, right? We've spent the whole book of Matthew seeing how the leadership does not like Jesus. And especially the last few chapters, since the triumphal entry, we've seen that the priesthood does not like Jesus. And so here we have a glimpse into one of the hearts of this passage, which is really neat. I want us to see two things from this first section. First, uh, let's pay attention to the characters in the story. It's not a coincidence that Matthew says the chief priests and the elders of the people are plotting against Jesus. You know, we've seen the whole book that Jesus was not popular amongst all of the leadership. So why are only these guys plotting now? Well, if we take our minds back to the Old Testament... If we go back to the book of Exodus in particular, and in some places in Deuteronomy, we start talking about the Passover. And the Passover is a very significant event in Israel's history. And, and we're not going to go too deep into it today. That's going to be the next few weeks. We're going to spend more time in it. But it's important just that we think of the Passover as such a cornerstone for the Jewish faith. Um, and there's an important, or one important point in particular I want us to catch from this. This is an important event in Israel's history, the Passover, because it's the first time we see on a national level the Lord sparing his people, not because of their goodness or their righteousness, but they, he spared them because they responded in faith to him. And they responded in faith that he would spare them if they offered a sacrifice instead. And so that brings us here, it's talking about Jesus, because what we see is that Jesus is preparing us for Passover, and he's preparing us for his crucifixion. And, and ultimately, what he wants us to see is that his crucifixion is going to be 
the Passover sacrifice. And, and see, the, the chief priests and the elders would have typically been the ones who would have sacrificed the Passover lamb for the people. And so Matthew draws attention to who is planning and plotting to kill Jesus. Not because they were the only ones, probably, but because they served this special role in sacrificing the Passover lamb. But instead of here preparing the lamb for slaughter, they're preparing Jesus for slaughter. We see that Really, these, these people are characters in this Passover narrative without even realizing it. You know, they said we should do this before Passover so there's no fuss. We don't want to deal with all that. But we know from the timing later on, it's going to happen right at Passover. We know that at this point, in this passage, Jesus is orchestrating the ultimate Passover sacrifice. And the sacrifice will not just be another lamb, but Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And this leads really nicely to the second point that I think we should see. We have to pay attention to the order in which these events happen. Jesus first says, you know that I will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests say, let's kill him. Matthew makes it clear to us the order in which these things happen. This was not the chief priests and the elders are conspiring against Jesus. He catches wind of it and he starts to plot. Uh, No, Jesus knew this was happening. He announces it first. He knows what's going to happen. And this is important for us to see that when we're preparing ourselves for the crucifixion story for the next few chapters, it can really feel like things are out of control here. It can feel like Jesus is getting caught up into something. But we have to remember that this is Jesus' story. This is his operation. And these characters are players in his plan. Or someone on the outside might look at the story and may, may think that, you know, how often have we heard this, you know, Jesus was uh, a victim of a cruel leadership or, or an uncaring empire. We know a little better. Yes, he was, he's unjustly tried. He's murdered, uh, prosecuted as a criminal that he wasn't. But this is not a twist to Jesus. He's in charge the whole time. So again, as we begin this passion narrative over the next few weeks, as we begin this kind of march to the end, this building to the climax, we have to remember this. We can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the one pulling the strings. And ultimately, don't forget that this whole story, the story of his coming to the world, his death, and his resurrection, are all for his purpose. They're all by his purpose and for his glory. So keep that glory in mind as we continue. We should see that radiating from every page as we near the end. We should see that Jesus is in control here. And the things that happen... He's allowing to happen here for his glory. So, let's see how that glory continues. Verses 6 through 13 says this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. 
for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so Jesus and his crew are back at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And so at this time, as we're leading up into Passover, it's more or less expected that all the Jewish people would come back or come back to Jerusalem from wherever they lived. And so the city was packed. It was full. And there's no place. And so what they do is they stay just outside of town in a place called Bethany. And they're staying with some friends there, this guy named Simon the leper. And we see in this passage a woman coming to Jesus and pouring some expensive ointment on his head. And this is a very strange scene for us today in Madison, Wisconsin, 2021, right? If, when I read this story about a woman like breaking a jar of something on his head, I think back to my childhood. I think back to Nickelodeon. And I think back to people getting slimed on TV. All right. Uh, and, and I just think back to, like, the contest shows, you know, you don't get there in time, and the slime comes down. But, but this isn't what's happening here. And in fact, in first century, this is not a terribly uncommon experience. It would not be happening every day, but this is not a weird, out-of-the-blue thing. It's, it's not unheard of for a rabbi, for a teacher, a very well-respected and very well-cared-for teacher, to receive some kind of treatment like this. It's not unheard of for somebody to show respect and love to uh, a teacher uh, through, this, uh, through this act, through this gift. And so this woman gave this gift because she knew Jesus to be who he said he is. And more than that, she responded to him with love and sacrifice. So the Gospel of John tells us that this is Mary, the brother of Lazarus. And in chapter 11 of John, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so all of a sudden, this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? This woman's brother was brought back from the dead. Well, of course, she's going to give this lavish gift to Jesus. And here, I think, is really the heart of all of these passages. All these three sections we're reading today are trying to prepare us. Matthew wants us to realize something big is coming. You know, we know this. We have hindsight. We know that we're leading to the crucifixion. We know how big this is going to be. And so Matthew wants us to realize that what's coming is big. This is huge. This is going to change everything. That we're just along for the ride. And what he wants us to see is that these events are going to bring us to a decision point. We have to decide how are we going to respond to what's happening. How are we going to respond to Jesus? Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And Mary, his sister, knew this. She knew that Jesus was worth following with her whole life. She knew the truth that so often I forget today, that Jesus is worth any cost. John tells us that this ointment that she poured on Jesus was worth about a year's wage. 
So like, let's just think about that. This is the equivalent of buying a brand new Tesla and just tossing somebody the keys. This is a huge gift. And in fact, it's so big that the disciples, they're getting worked up about it. Do you hear the tone there? They're so quick to correct this woman. You could have sold that and given the money to the poor. And, and on some level, that makes sense to me. Is this the best use of money? Is this the best way to spend this value? And especially after last week, you know, James preached on the, the sheep and the goats. I kind of get where they're coming from here. It almost feels wasteful. But what they don't realize, and, and what sometimes I don't realize, is, is that really they're missing the whole heart of the matter. Last week when James preached on the sheep and the goats, he reminded us that when we serve the least of these brothers, that we're serving Jesus. And that it's our love for Jesus that moves us to care for those around us. So it moves us to serve. And here, this woman, she didn't have to go through somebody else to love Jesus. She had the direct line. He was right there in front of her. She didn't need to get to the poor in order to love Jesus. He was right there, ready to receive this expensive gift. And this is what he means when he says, the poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. Time is running out for the disciples. Again, we know this. Hindsight, we see the time's coming to an end here. Jesus' time on earth is coming to a close, and somehow, this woman, either she knows, maybe she gets a sense of that, or maybe this is just the Lord's timing, she gives Jesus this lavish gift out of love. And here again, we're reminded of the main point today. When we come across Jesus, when we're confronted by who he is, and especially by what he's done, how will we respond? This woman knew how to respond. She knew the truth that no gift is too lavish for Jesus. She knew that there's no gift too grand to give Jesus. And she knew, again, something that I forget all too often, that Jesus is worth any cost. And we also see that this gift is received by Jesus. Jesus tells the disciples that what this woman's done is so good. It's going to be a part of the story now. That any time the gospel is proclaimed, like we're doing right here, right now, this woman's story is going to be a part of it. He's saying that in this story of redemption, in this passion narrative that we're going into, this woman's sacrificial gift to Jesus was beautiful. And then now it's a part of the story. And friends, this is, a, this is a powerful idea for us to wrestle with. We've seen in this section two people who've offered gifts to the Lord. And their gifts have been worked into his redemptive story. One, very subtly, Simon the leper. He offered his house to Jesus and his disciples. And one, right at center stage. This, this woman, Mary, 
who anointed Jesus. And it's just a, a nice little reminder that we can't forget that, that the Lord uses these gifts that we give back to him and these sacrifices we make to him. And that this grand redemptive story that he's writing somehow involves us too. And so our job then is to decide how we will respond. Will we be like Simon and Mary? Will we open our homes to those who need it? Will we give loving gifts to those whom Jesus loves? Will we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned? These are all things that Jesus told us would glorify him. And we have to decide, is that who we are? Are we a people who respond to Jesus in love and sacrifice? Or do we turn away from him? Because ultimately what we're seeing here, and we're going to see in this passage, is that everyone is going to find somebody that they identify with in this story. Ultimately, everyone responds to Jesus in some way. And so the question is, which character here are we? And unfortunately, we see that not every character in the story is going to respond to Jesus well. So we're going to jump back in in a second, but before that, again, let's remember where we've been so far. First, we're reminded that Jesus is orchestrating this whole story. This is his show. We remember that he is the Passover lamb, and that this whole coming passion narrative is his story unfolding. And second, we just saw that everyone's going to respond to Jesus in some way. Some are going to have good responses. And now we're going to jump in and see what a bad response looks like. Verses 14 through 16 say this. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Up until now, in the Gospels, we have gotten to mostly celebrate Jesus. The good he's done. We've gotten to see time and again how he moves towards people in love. We've gotten to sit at his feet and learn from him. Matthew has painted such a beautiful picture of this Jesus who loved everyone around him so well. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to imagine that there are people who saw this Jesus and did not love him back. And, and Judas Iscariot, mentioned here, one of the 12 disciples, his close inner circle of followers and friends, decides after years of being with Jesus, after seeing every story that we saw of him healing, casting out demons, feeding people, he decides he's going to betray Jesus. And we don't know why. The Gospels don't tell us Judas's motivations for betraying. Maybe he was just plain greed. 30 pieces of silver was enough for him. Maybe it was disappointment. Jesus didn't fill this picture of a Messiah that he had expected. He, he wasn't kicking Rome out of power and setting Israel in charge. Or maybe Judas was... Like just like so many of us, that after we spend enough time with someone, we start to build narratives. We start to let bitterness grow in our hearts. 
And eventually that bitterness builds up until it somehow makes sense to sell out our friends. We don't know why. We don't know why Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. We can guess at motives all we want, but his motives are not explicitly stated. But what we do see is that after this scene with Mary, she pours the ointment on Jesus. That was somehow the final straw for Judas. Matthew connects us from that action with the woman to Judas leaving and betraying Jesus. And what Matthew wants us to see is that although we don't fully know why Judas did this, he wants us to see that there's a direct connection between these two actions, especially because he wants us to contrast these two responses to Jesus. See, where, where Mary gave what was probably the most expensive thing that she owned to Jesus, Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, which was the minimum that you could sell a person for at the time. This is the minimum value of a life in the first century. And I want us to pause here. You know, we're coming up on pieces of this story that we've heard many times before. We've heard so many times that Judas betrayed Jesus. It's, it's a word. To be a Judas means to betray someone close to you. But what I want to catch here, what I want us to see, is that this betrayal doesn't happen in a vacuum. Judas, like Mary, is responding to Jesus. And what I want us to see is the center of this story is not Judas. It's not Mary. It's not the disciples. It's not the elders and the chief priests. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. At the center of this whole story is Jesus. And here, we see another picture of him. And there's another picture of him standing, reaching out his arm, and calling to us. Calling us to move towards him in, in love and sacrifice. And for some of us, we'll move to, him, move to him like that, like this woman. But some, to us, some of us, we're going to turn away. We're going to abandon and betray. But the point is that it's still Jesus here at the center. Jesus calling. And as we stand here, or sit here, some 2,000 years later, we're reading these words. We have to be reminded again and again that this is the Lord's plan unfolding in front of us in the Word. There are so many elements in this story that remind us of God's sovereignty, the, the fact that He's in control. And what I also want us to see is that time and time again we see His goodness. Don't forget, friends, that the chief priests seeking to kill Jesus and Judas' betrayal are not a surprise to him. Even in their rejection of Jesus, he is still in control. Even in these moments of rebellion and pain and injustice, we see that God is still at work to do a good thing. And this is a very difficult truth, but it's one we have to wrestle with when we read passages like this. We have to believe that if God is in control and if God is good, that God has a plan for this brokenness in the world. 
The scheming of evil men does not escape the Lord. The injustices we see and experience are not beyond His sight. And this is hard to wrestle with. This is a hard truth. But we see here, even those who wanted to kill Jesus were still playing into His plans for goodness and redemption. So the question then is how are we going to respond to that? I mean, we've seen the goodness of Jesus. Judas saw the goodness of Jesus. We've seen time and again him healing the sick, feeding the hungry, casting out demons. We saw him loving those around him. We have this beautiful picture of Jesus and his goodness. And we see here his control. He's in control. We see God's sovereignty at play again here. And so we have to say again, how will we respond to this? And so we're going to move towards a time of application. And instead of maybe talking about some ways that we might apply and respond, I'm going to go back and let's talk again about the characters in the story and how they responded to Jesus. And some of us, we're going to be like Mary. We've seen in Simon the leper. We've seen the goodness of Jesus. We've seen his love for us and the good things that he's done for me, even when I didn't deserve it. And we stand here and say, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. And like Mary, we need to see then, what do we have to give? What do we have to give Jesus? And I promise you that there is no gift that Jesus doesn't deserve. There's no gift in the universe that is too lavish for its creator. There is no act of sacrifice that is too much for him. And so look at all you have to give Jesus. What you have to sacrifice and give it to him. And so what does this look like? How do we do this? Well, let's turn back to James' sermon from last week. Jesus told us that what it looks like to love him and to sacrifice for him is to love and care for those around us. To love and care for the least of those, least of these around us. We should be ready to sacrifice, to serve and to give because we know that in doing that, we are loving Jesus who has loved us so well. And lastly, I want to consider the other characters in this story. For some of us, we've seen this picture of Jesus. The loving and merciful Lord that created the universe and still cares enough to come and die for us. And we reject him in one way or another. Judas and the chief priests and elders rejected Jesus. And ultimately they betray him. But I believe so strongly that there's a picture here that we sometimes miss. I believe that Jesus still desired that they turn back to him before it was too late. And when you read the Gospel of John, there's this scene at the end where Judas is about to go out and betray him. And, and Jesus turns to him and he says, do what you've decided to do. And when I read this, I can feel the tension. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's happening. And what I can't help but see is that, that Jesus didn't go stomping around. He didn't go yelling at him. He didn't fight him. 
He didn't turn him in for attempted murder. He just let him go. And I, I see in these this, a Jesus who, even when he's betrayed, loves so deeply. And this is good news for us, church, because ultimately, in some form or another, we've all turned away from him, and we've all betrayed him. And what I want us to see today is that Jesus still loves and calls to those that have turned away from him, and even to those that betray him. No one is too far away to answer the call. No one is too far gone to be saved. And no one has rejected Jesus too deeply that transformation cannot happen. They can still be drawn back to him. And so for one reason or another, you feel like Judas in this story, or the chief priests. I want you to remember that Jesus is still there. It's not too late, and he's still standing with his arm stretched out, calling you back to him. There is still time to turn and return to him. And I promise you, he is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that, uh, as, as all of us, me especially, have turned away from you and betrayed you in my life, Lord. I thank you that you have still loved me so well, that you've called me back to you. I thank you that even in these dark times, even in the darkness we see around us, injustice, the scheming of evil men, you are not gone. That you still see that you have plans, that you have good plans, Lord. And as we see those in the gospel story betraying you, plotting to kill you, do what is the greatest act of injustice in history, that you had plans for this, and that you made such a good thing happen from it. That what they planned for evil, you planned for good. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go from here, we could be people that see this truth of your goodness and your sovereignty, and that we could be a people who respond in love and sacrifice to you, Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.